Okay, we are live on YouTube. Hello, everyone. Hello to all our guests and hello to everyone on the other side of the screen. I know it's going to be very difficult to grab your attention today, as we know your attention is probably elsewhere, as so much is at stake right now in the world, and especially in the United States, where two of our guests come from. Nevertheless, uh, thank you for being there and thank you for accepting our invitations, Tom, Diana, Nunu and Carlos. Before I introduce you, let me start as usual by introducing Porto Protocol. We can never miss this opportunity. We are a foundation that was born out of climate change leadership events that took place in Porto in 2018 and 2019. What we're trying to build today is a platform of climate solutions throughout the wine value chain. For that, we need our members to share what they're doing, regardless of what size they are, in which stage of climate action they are. So do join us. We hope we can count on you and make this a reality as much, much in the wine world at a global scale. So moving on to the topic that brings us here today. The topic is called the carbon sequestration throughout the wine cycle. This is a really important topic. What we're going to try to do is quite challenging as we're going to try to cover various uh, stages of the wine cycle where we can capture carbon. We're going to start with soils. As, as we know, this is one of the biggest hot topics worldwide uh, on how soils, already a carbon sink, a natural carbon sink, have much more potential than it's being used to sequester carbon. Then we're moving, and for this, let me introduce Tom Cogran from Maryland. And then we have Diana Sacis, who is both representing France and the US. Hello, Diana. Uh, Diana comes from Domaine du Jack and uh, from Snowden Vineyards in, in Napa. And Diana will be talking about carbon, carbon sequestration throughout the fermentation process, as well as technologies that are being used nowadays to, to sequester carbon. Then we have Carlos de Jesus from Amorim Cork, and he'll be telling us how cork can be so much more than a stopper and uh, its ability to offset part of, the, part of the carbon that comes out of the wine packaging. And then we have Nunu that is not only an expert in uh, ecosystems, but he's also passionate about it. So he's here in, this, in these two regards. So without further ado, I pass on the word to you, Nunu, and thank you all again for being here today. Thank you so much, Marta. It's a great pleasure to be here with you and uh, to participate in this Porto Protocol Climate Talk uh, with Tom and Diana and Carlos. Um, the, the idea beyond this talk is to, to address the issue of carbon, but looking at carbon in a, in a, in a structured way, not just looking at the carbon as a problem, but looking at the carbon as a piece of the ecosystem management in the vineyards, carbon as a part of the industrial processes of winemaking and carbon as a, an issue regarding uh, packaging, bottling and stoppers. The, 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 although the molecule is the same, seems like it's the same, the, 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 the way it's processed along these different, these different aspects is very relevant regarding the whole wine business. And carbon, uh, it's beyond just a, a, a topic, a hot topic. It's a real issue. Climate change is a real issue. Ecological degradation is a real issue. And we have to address it despite uh, 
the impacts that we might be uh, perceiving regarding these this key, key issues. And um, for that, we believe that the, the wine sector is a, a sector where, where there's a special degree of preparation and readiness to respond and to act towards these issues and still make wonderful wine. That's all, all we, we want to at the end of the day. So I'm, I'm going to, to, to challenge Tom as our uh, first uh, uh, talker in this, in this issue and um, ask him if he could tell us uh, uh, a little bit more uh, about how the role of vineyards in the uh, a low carbon economy and how can we uh, look at the vineyards as part of the solution for climate change adaptation and uh, and optimizing the sustainability in the in the sector, please, Tom, can you share some thoughts with us? Sure. Thanks very much, Nuno, and thanks very much to the to Marta and the Porto Protocol and to all the audience. Um, the, the the underlying um, concern and the and the benefits of thinking about soil is that um, we need to to take carbon dioxide out of the air. It's unrealistic in the foreseeable future to think that we can completely eliminate fossil fuels. For example, you need to have um, a, a jet engines, jet airplanes, for example, will still need that concentrated source of fuel. So, so in that context, we need to have negative emissions. We need to be able to take carbon out of the air in order to reach our, our, um, our CO2 neutral, neutral uh, uh, goals. Um, so, of course, putting carbon back into soil, which is the largest single terrestrial store of carbon, and therefore there's a lot of potential, even a very small increase in the, in the percentage of carbon in soil, um, can mean a great deal of carbon dioxide that's taken out of the atmosphere. Um, and to put that in perspective, uh, there's a, there's a, an initiative that started in France, but I think California has signed on uh, in a, a very explicit way called the Four Per Thousand Initiative. Uh, that's raising the uh, soil organic matter by 0.4% per year, which sequester all the carbon dioxide emissions uh, produced by the world if we were able to do that across the all agricultural soils. So it's a, it's a really um, important thing that we that we think about. Um, unfortunately, right now, if you're thinking across agriculture, um, uh, that we continue to be a net emitter from the soil of of uh, carbon dioxide of carbon and carbon dioxide. Uh, tillage is the most uh, uh, problematic of our of our agricultural practices. When you till the soil you introduce oxygen in it, that oxidizes the carbon dioxide, and it also releases other uh, greenhouse gases like nitric oxide. In fact, the reason that we till is not just weed control, but it releases uh, nutrients in the soil, and therefore those are available to the plant. That was hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago when we started tilling. In order to reduce that, there are three general practices that are really important to, to take on, and We've, they've been shown that you can actually add carbon if you get about, if you do it in the right way. Uh, one, is, of course, is no-till agriculture. Uh, vineyards need to be thinking about that. There are many uh, vineyards that are still tilled on a regular basis. Um, the second is adding cover crops. Um, 
uh, when the in, in an agricultural systems and annual agricultural systems, those are just planting an annual uh, crop to keep the keep the soil covered. Um, it's a little bit different in vineyards, but I'll come back to that in a minute. And then the third thing, which I think is really important, is uh, diverse crop rotations in agricultural settings. This is where it's it's interesting in uh, vineyard settings because we have perennial plants that are more forest-like and we have the opportunity then to develop both per perennials in the in the vineyard itself. Um, we focus here at Doden on perennial grasses and forbs um, which are then supplemented with with uh, annual crops and of course in addition to the sequestration that that allows it has many other benefits for for the vineyard. For example um, uh, above ground, we have the opportunity for biodiversity that attracts beneficial insects. And if those of you who watched the last of the uh, climate talks uh, will recognize that. If you haven't listened to it, it's very good. I hope you will. Um, and it also provides uh, food, diverse food sources for microbes, which are really important in, in uh, stabilizing the carbon once it is introduced into the soil into a long-lived stored form. And finally, it creates more resilience for our vineyards. Um, those of us who are growing grapes now recognize that we really need to improve the resilience as we have more extreme weather events with climate change. One of the things that those diverse plant sources do is they, they have different root depths. And so when the soil at the surface is dry, the opportunity to draw nutrients out of deeper deeper soils is there. When there's too much water, we have the opportunity to get that water out of the, out of the vineyard. So, um, so having those different root depths is very important. So um, I'll stop there for the moment, Nuno, and hand uh, back to you. Yes, yes, thank you very much. You raised a lot of issues that are very interesting and, and challenging. And uh, um, some of the, the, the issues that we're talking here about the, using the cover crops and using perennial grasses and addressing the soil as part of the metabolism in the, the vineyards that regulates and stores carbon. It's something that really seems to me like cutting edge in terms of ecosystem management in a, in a vineyard. So moving on from the, the, the vineyard to the process of winemaking, uh, one of the major um, issues that we've been uh, covering regarding carbon, it has all to do with the fermentation process. And in the fermentation process, so we have a, a series of reactions and one of the outputs of those reactions is in fact carbon dioxide. Um, should that be uh, addressed uh, as a, a, an issue in terms of carbon accounting in the, in the, the, the wine making process? Are we clear on that? Are there some doubts? And uh, what are the, the, your prospects, Diana, uh, regarding this, this issue and how should it, be, should it be addressed from your perspective? Well, um, to begin with, um, if you're going to do a, an analysis of your CO2 emissions as a winery, your CO2 that the fermentations release will be reabsorbed by your surface area of vineyards uh, the following season. So it comes to a net zero. But these measurements are woefully uh, crude at this stage. They don't, for example, include the difference of the carbon dioxide 
dioxide, um, the, the ability of a soil to absorb carbon dioxide if the soil is farmed without chemicals or with, with chemicals, addressing what Tom just described. So there is absolutely no difference made between organic farming, no-till farming, or using intensive herbicides. And if you go and have um, a CO2 audit done, they will tell you that you have lower emissions if you use glyphosate because you make fewer tractor passes. So I have not spent much time personally worrying about um, my CO2 emissions, essentially in terms of the way the world talks about them currently in terms of reducing emissions. Because the fact is, is that if we are to save viticulture, and at this stage, we are in the middle, as we all know, of the, the sixth greatest um, extinction in the planet has ever known, viticulture is on the endangered species list. We are right up there, especially fine wine. We could probably still make wine, but fine wine is, fine wine is got just a few years if we don't start getting our acts together. So what interests me is being negative. And that is going to be by my own definition of negative because, so, um, uh, let's talk about the CO2 released during alcoholic, alcoholic fermentation. Um, there is a company in, um, in Canada which is running on, on solar power and has huge fans and it is sucking air out of the atmosphere and uh, so the atmospheric concentration of CO2 as we all know is at 400 ppm and the concentration of atmospheric CO2 pre-industrial revolution was 300 ppm. That's what we have to get back to if we are to save our butts. And um, so they're sucking it out at a concentration of 400 ppm and they're taking the carbon dioxide out and they're making lots of different products, one of which is jet fuel, as you mentioned. Um, so I think that we have to be really careful when we talk about decarbonizing the economy because really you want to look at where your carbon is coming from. If it's coming above ground, then it's okay it's in my book. If it's coming from fossil fuels, then you're just making the problem worse. So uh, carbon that is sourced, which could come from our fermentations, that is sourced from living materials in the atmosphere is a green solution. So um, our fermentations, an alcoholic fermentation in the peak of it, is producing almost pure CO2. We're at 990,000 parts per million. That's an opportunity. We have all of the surface area of, you know, for Domaine du Jacques, 18 hectares. All of the fruit from 18 hectares is in one place at one time, coming off the top of the tanks at a million parts per million, pure CO2, pure, clean, unpolluted CO2. That is an enormous opportunity. And, and honestly, every winemaker, it's crossed their mind at one point or another. You can't deny it as it's like going straight up your nose and stinging your eyes. It's right there. And so it requires infrastructure, but it's doable. And I have visited two installations in Bordeaux that have been doing it for the past couple of years. And how you do it, there are a lot of different options. It's called carbon capture and release. The beer industry has been capturing their CO2 for a long time and using it to recarbonate their beers. That's one option. You can use it um, to recarbonate things. You could, if you're on a small scale, um, you could just collect it. And if you have a greenhouse, you could use meter it out in your greenhouse throughout the year and encourage the growth of whatever you're growing in the greenhouse. Or there is this um, solution of turning it into inorganic bicarbonates 
Um, so essentially you'll have a hose coming off the top of the tank, bringing all of your carbon dioxide to one central location, and then you have options. But if you're turning it into bicarbonate, then you need to partner up with another industry that can take that bicarbonate and grow, for example, algae, turn that algae into jet fuel or many other things. You can also, I mean, there's, you can also do as some people are doing and uh, drill a hole into the center of the earth and release the CO2 down, then you're actually losing it. And CO2 is a heavy gas, so it will go down and it'll be out of the atmosphere. Um, but if you're doing bicar the bicarbonate solution, you have to partner up with, say, this, this company that's growing algae and get them to return to you the precursor ion, which you, um, which you reacted with your CO2. And that's, it's really important to think the whole thing through because at one point I had thought, great, we'll make calcium carbonate, we'll make stone, and it'll be a true negative. Unfortunately, in order to generate uh, calcium hydroxide, which is the precursor molecule that you need to precipitate with that CO2, you start with calcium carbonate and you have to heat it up, drive off a CO2 molecule. So you're back to square zero. So you have to think the whole process through, find a partner industry that will return to you that ion. You then capture CO2, send it to, the, to this industry. They make whatever they're making out of their carbon. There you might also want to investigate because one of the th potential things they can make is plastic and that's not the point. <laughs> so I think you might want to inquire, you know, what, what they're, who the person who's buying your carbon dioxide, what they're doing with it, but then return to you the, um, the calcium or the, or the sodium or the potassium, whichever system you've decided to work with. And this is really new um, technology. There, like I said, there are only two running um, wineries that are doing it even on a trial scale. Um, and then there's also, you can turn it into methane, which is being done at Taurus, and they are turning their carbon dioxide into methane, which they use on their forklifts, but they're doing 10% of their, 10% of their production. The potential is huge. It requires organization. And if I could rebuild the world from the bottom up, I would plumb uh, the city, St. Helena or Morris saint denis or Bordeaux, so that all of the CO2 goes off to one central location where they then use it to turn it into jet fuel or turn it into some kind of green, green fuel uh, and separate the two industries. I think that it is doable if you have, if you are truly on a large scale. I mean, if Bordeaux, if Bordeaux with their 5.5 million hectoliters of wine, if they captured all of that CO2, they would capture 55,000 tons of carbon dioxide. And it's huge. The, the alcohol industry is uniquely placed to have a huge impact, a huge negative impact on the atmospheric CO2. And so it's an exciting opportunity. That's uh, pretty amazing. <laughs> uh, I think that every one of us listening to those, those perspectives, those takes on the carbon, as, as you told, as a carbon as a, a green solution, it's from my point of view, it's, it's a, an optimistic take and we do need optimistic takes on these uh, on these issues and uh, it's great to see that you can imagine uh, and put in practice as you are uh, this kind of technology to create other options and um, the whole issue of creating options seems to me like the, the, the way to go i don't think that there's a, a single uh, one solution fits all to this issue of climate change and, and carbon regulation so it's amazing to see some of that work being developed and uh, seeing 
seeing what can come out of, of it. And talking about options and uh, alternatives, one of the, after, after making the, the, the wine, uh, we often put it in, into a bottle and use a, a stopper. Uh, some say that the, 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 the quark can be the most sustainable uh, stopper in terms of, um, of carbon, of carbon, of carbon balance. And um, for that, we would like to know more about what is, what really is a quark, what's in a quark, where does it come from and why it can be part of the options and solutions to help us regulate the carbon cycle and create a, a, a carbon net zero or even negative, as I was saying, industry in the, the wine business. So please, Carlos, can you give us your take on that? Sure. Thank you, Nuno, and uh, hello, everyone. Well, we are certainly um, one of many solutions that we just heard um, several exciting new options, and I think um we all want to remain very positive in this day and age and i think technology will be able to give us a hand but we also have to be able to to recognize what it's already out there um what it's already available and when you look at cork you're looking at a massive co2 net sink um trees uh and this is part of the part of the story that trees are never get uh cut down. So we're talking about 2.2, 2.3 million hectares that exist across the Western Mediterranean Basin. It's a native species. Cork oaks have been around for millions and millions of years. We pretty much threw everything that we could at it. They're still around. They're very, very sturdy. They are oaks at the end of the day. So they're slow growing and all that net retention stays over a period of time um, that certainly easily exceeds 100 years. You can have cork oaks living well above 200 years. So we harvest the cork, we don't again cut down the tree, and we punch natural whole cork stoppers. Well, the stoppers certainly that go to the type of wines that we want to taste more often than not are carved as a single piece uh, from the bark of that, um, of that um, oak. And they can retain as much as 309 grams of CO2 in one single stopper. We're talking about a very, very complex cell structure. To give you an idea, one single natural whole cork stopper uh, packs as much as 800 million cells in one, in one stopper. And each one of those cells carries a gas that it's uh, pretty much like the air that we breathe. So there is oxygen in there. There are certain other things. But at the end of the day, what we've been trying to make the case for is that wineries are buying uh, approximately around the world 13 billion stoppers made out of cork every year. And if that sounds a lot, well, it is obviously a lot, but it's about 70% of the entirety of the number of bottles that are filled and stopped every, every year around the world with, um, with, with something. So if it's not cork, it will either be a screw cap or a single-use plastic stopper. There's still about, amazingly, 1.8 or 1.9 billion of those around the, around the world every year. So we need to also pay attention to that. But when you look at Cork's own um, CO2 balance, it's quite fantastic. And the wineries are already using those stoppers anyway. So without an added cost, you can and you should incorporate that CO2 retention given by the stopper that you are using. And different stoppers will have different CO2 retention capabilities. It can go as much as... Uh, 500 and actually there's one over there, 562 grams in one single stopper. 
But that net retention of CO2 should be incorporated in, in the balance of the, of, of the wineries. The OIV has uh, issued uh, instructions about that. The PEFCRs of, of the European Union point into that direction. So there is a growing body of evidence in, in addition to seven or eight, nine actually, life cycle assessments that have been uh, produced by entities like PricewaterhouseCoopers or Ernst & Young uh, that we have at Amarin worked with them to establish really what each one of those different types of stockers can represent to each one of the different wineries. And at the end of the day, it's a, it, we, we can and we should become the go-to partner for those wineries that are willing, as many, many are, to reduce their environmental footprint. But I, I, I want to point out one thing, uh, and sorry to, to, to bring this up, but the fact is that if we could somehow miraculously fix the CO2 problem today, tomorrow, we would still wake up with a very, very big sustainability problem around us. And I think that as, as much as we should and we have to get excited about the ability to remove CO2 from the atmosphere, it's urgent. No, nobody really in their right mind today can still continue to dispute that. We have to do that. We have to achieve that goal. Um, but there's a lot more around that. And, and we ought to think about it. And we ought to think about the options that will contribute not just one single cause, whether it's retaining CO2 or, you know, acid rain did not stop falling because we stopped talking about that. So we need to measure atmospheric acidification. We need to look into water purification. There's a bunch of other things. So what are the options that tick the biggest possible number of, of boxes? That's what we have to look for. And when you look at cork, and that's what gets us so excited about it, is that we tick so many of those right boxes that we're really keen to discuss further on the on the subject that's great carlos and in, indeed it's um it's an uh, a very relevant perspective to see how many boxes we can take with different options and looking at uh, the the industry as a whole um i guess maybe uh the the, the wine sector is really um in a good place to tick many of those boxes. For example, uh, if can imagine this scenario and, and going back to, to, to Tom in Maryland, imagine that in your vineyard, you have trees that also produce the, the, the cork that you use for your own bottles and uh, in, in, your, in your cellar and uh, in the winemaking process, you have high tech green technology that builds the, the, the fuel for your tractors and, uh, and the, the cars that go around distributing those, those, those bottles. Can you, and moving back to, to this, to this um, well, it's, it's not that idyllic, it's, a, it's, it's something that it's in our, in our range, but going back to the, to the land, um, how do you, do you see the, the idea of when managing a vineyard, not being only focused on the plot of vines, but looking at the land as a, as a whole. And can you uh, share with us some of your thoughts regarding how can the land as a whole and the landscape as a whole, where the vineyard is part of the landscape, can uh, provide us with other ideas, options, or solutions regarding carbon, uh, carbon management? Tom? Oh, uh, sure, Nina. Uh, let me comment on something that Diana said first, which is, um, which I think is really important. We all tend to think about tillage 
as the bad actor in the way we take care of our land and prepare our land. But that's actually, it's, it's really about soil disturbance. So glyphosate, use of glyphosate to, to take, get to reduce weeds is not an undisturbed soil for a number of reasons. First of all, it takes away all the roots, so it takes away all the cover. Second, it reduces the uh, sugars that come from the cover crop, and it also reduces the food that's necessary for the uh, microbes that are stabilizing the carbon. Um, so there's a lot of reasons to think that a chemically disturbed soil, it, oh, and, and the third is that they're actually antimicrobial. And, and, and uh, glyphosate is also um, a chelator, which means it's gonna take away the mineral, mineral content of the soil. Those minerals are important in terms of uh, producing the carbonates from the carbon dioxide that does get into the soil for a variety of reasons. Chemical disturbance isn't all that great. Um, and so those I hope that Tom gets back to us soon. Oh, Tom, you you might cut off. Yeah, you cut off for uh, for thirty seconds or, or so. Oh. Can you please? Am I back now? You're back. You're back. Okay, good. Sorry. Nice to have you back. Um, not quite sure what happened. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad to be back. <laughs> um, so landscapes are really important, and this is to the to to your question. Um, uh, for many, many reasons. We think of, uh, of our entire farm, which is 555 acres as part of the landscape. It has, um, uh, we have uh, 400 acres of natural woodland that uh, permits, um, that, that allows us for, I'll just give you one example. One of the things we do in terms of trying to improve our soil and get more microbes into the, into the soil is to, use, is to have a static aerobic composter. Mostly we aim for uh, carbon nitrogen ratios of 35 to 40 to one, so very high. Gonna take out some of the nitrogen and reduce the bigger of the vineyard, which is important to us. But also the way we make that, I go out in the woods and I find really healthy trees and I dig up some soil and I uh, inoculate the, the new compost uh, stock with with that soil that's bringing indigenous microorganisms from our woodland from uh, into into the vineyard. Now um, uh, it is fairly good. There's fairly good evidence now that that it's those microorganisms that are the core of the terroir effect. They bring the individual stamp of our spot. So. This, this sort of goes from both enhancing the health of the soil, sequestering carbon, but it also goes to what makes our wines unique in Maryland compared to, to Portugal or Burgundy or those kinds of things, which of course is what's fun for all of us in the wine industry. So, um, so yeah, the landscape effects are very, very important. Um, we have uh, natural, uh, those natural woodlands, natural areas uh, bring in beneficial insects. We've developed, we have uh, three acres of uh, deliberately uh, planted um, insectiaries 
I call them pollinator sanctuaries because it gives them a place to overwinter, it gives them a place to breed, it gives them good food. And so there's a lot of a lot of benefits to those kinds of effects. Yeah, that, that's amazing. As, a, as an ecologist that uh, just happened to be working in the in the in the wine sector, I guess this is one of the most exciting sectors to be working in ecology in applied ecology. What you said about the um, the impact that biodiversity can have on terroir it's something that truly truly amazes me and defines what can be great great prospects to integrate the landscape the the the, the, the biological elements into the the wine business so thinking about those areas not as idle or marginal areas so they are part of the the, the, the production strategy it's it's really really amazing and then, yeah, and of course, I'm sort of a lazy farmer, and so anytime <laughs> I can, and I'm frugal, we're known for that around here, so anytime I can get an insect or That's a microbe to do my job for me, it's, yeah. I'm really happy about that. I, I'm totally agreeing with you. I, I, sometimes I say to my, to my students or in lectures that we have to be proactively lazy, so using procrastination as a, as a tool, as a strategic tool, yes. because... Well, if nature actually has ways to deal with the issue and, and, and to, to, to solve part of the problem, let's learn from, from nature and uh, applying. And um, regarding this issue of learning with nature uh, and using it now a little bit of more technological uh, approach, we have a, a question from Ivan Neil saying that what happens to the CO2 emissions when we dispose of the corks and uh, what happens to the CO2 when conglomerate corks are produced, and um, I would like to, to to obviously address this issue to, to Carlos, but add a, a, a provocation. Okay, imagine that Diana is working in this amazing green top C, CO2 technology, and she discovers a way to build a polymer that can make cork stoppers from pure CO2. <laughs> is she uh, is is Diana becoming a problem, Carlos? Carlos, you have to, to turn your sound on. Um, no, I, I don't. I don't think Diana will be a problem, or her new technology will be a problem. I think we need the problem is so big that we need all the, the, the solutions that anyone can bring onto the table as long as they are feasible. Also, I think when you look at at the, at the CO2 um, associated with with cork, one of the things that we are working very, very actively is to try to upcycle more corks than we have been currently upcycled. Um, we have recycling programs in the United States. Um, France is the largest actually market for recycled corks. We have it in South Africa. We have it in Portugal, of course, in Italy. Uh, and even in China, we have a small thing going on. But it's a drop in a bucket. Um, as I said, you know, we, Amorin alone last year, we made 5.4, 5.5 billion corks, and we recycled a little bit over 500 million. So that gives you an idea of the extent uh, of, of the road that we have ahead. But as someone once said, you know, all big, uh, big, um, big paths ahead of us start with a small step. So we, we definitely on the right track. Until then, until then, what happens, and, and going back to the question, is that CO2 will eventually uh, be released to the atmosphere. The good news is that it's going to take a lot of time. 
The good news also is that if the worst thing that ends up in a landfill is a cork stopper, uh, then we would have solved the big problem that we have, another big problem that we have. But that CO2 eventually will decay. We're talking about years and years and years, and we release into the into the atmosphere. It's still CO2 that was captured initially to make that very stopper. So we are not talking about the net emissions of CO2 to the to to the atmosphere, and we must be uh, aware of aware of that. But you're looking at cork stoppers that last. Um, I, I last uh, not not long ago, we went to uh, to a, an opening of a few bottles of Madeira wine that were found not far from, from where we are, from where you are, Tom, uh, that were from the 18th, uh, late 18th century, and several of them from the 19th centuries. The corks were still there. So I'm not too worried about that. Um, in regards to the products of the competition, I, I don't want to get too much into that, if you allow me um, the courtesy to, to our competitors. All I can tell is one thing, no cork, um, has a no microglomerate cork has a higher percentage of cork than ours. So I won't talk about the, com the competitors, but I can assure you that uh, it's worth looking into that. Um, so I think all, all in all, um, it's a good sink of CO2 and will last for a long, long time. Like I said, we talk about hundreds of years off. Carlos, this is Tom. Um, I can think of several uses for, for old corks, and we've been thinking about this a little bit. Uh, one, and I'm just wondering whether there's any research on this. One is to use it as compost, um, mixing it in with our wood chips and the other material that we put in our, in our compost piles every year. Um, another is to produce biochar. Um, and that's an interesting thing because you can, if you capture the heat off of the biochar, then you can use it to heat your greenhouses or your winery or, or whatever. And, and you then end up with something that's pretty interesting agriculturally. Um, uh, and there are probably some other uses that I can't think of. Oh, uh, just burying it under anaerobic conditions. So if you take those little wood spoons and other compostable or, um, or uh, recyclable types of uh, uh, single use items, if you bury those in anaerobic conditions as opposed to putting them in the compost pile. They actually are stored, the carbon is actually stored longer. So um, that's, that's certainly an option. People, people are, are, you can compost corks. So you can, you can throw the corks in, in, well, depending on where in, in, in the United States you live or in other countries, you do have those compost bins. You can, you can and you should throw them in there rather than put them in, in a, in a regular regular garbage or your regular trash, no, no doubt about that. Uh, mulch, using cork as, a, as mulch for the wineries, it's one of my favorite applications because speaking about circular economy here, we're talking about right, right, right on target. We have done that um, actually with the vineyards in the UK because when we recycle corks in the US or in South Africa, or in China, certainly, we cannot bring the corks back to Portugal. That would not make any sense. So we need to find local outlets. And the outlets that we found with Lathwaite in, uh, in the UK was actually to grind those corks, make them into mulch. It helps regulate uh, water cycles. It helps regulate temperature. Uh, in fact, in, in a lot of situations, a lot of football fields, for example, even in the US, 
in in Arizona, a very important state nowadays for all of us. Uh, but jokes aside, um, it's uh, the Arizona. And now I missed the name of the football team in Arizona. Sorry, I got. Do you know by Cardinals. any chance? The Cardinals. Uh, there you are. So you, we can actually we have replaced uh, the rubber underneath uh, the artificial grass or the natural grass because we do this for for soccer fields in Europe also with cork granules. We can lower the temperature as much as 10 degrees Celsius. And the insurance companies love us because the athletes get injured far less often because the temperature is much, much lower. So I, I think that is one of my favorite paths. Um, and we, we, we have done that. It works. The water, the water cycle regulations is actually quite, uh, quite remarkable. And, and again, it's a complete circle because the winery got the corks from us. They've broken the corks or they ground the corks into, into, into granules and then they're using that on the, on the soil that will produce the grapes, that will produce the, the wine that will get more corks. So it's a beautiful story. Can, can I jump in? Um, because I think that's really important, this idea of a cycle. There's nothing inherently wicked about CO2. CO2 emissions, respiring, breathing, that's part of life. So all organic things will eventually be re-decomposed and sent back into the atmosphere. Again, what you really want to look at when you're using a, an energy source is where did it come from? And it's very easy. If it was a fossil fuel, it's part of the problem. And if it's from what is growing already above ground, then it's not part of the problem. So um, yeah, carbon dioxide is natural and it goes through these cycles very naturally. And the planet had established a beautiful equilibrium for the last 800,000 years up until the industrial revolution. And then when we started unbalancing that, that, that cycle by taking these huge deposits of organic matter that had decomposed over millions of years and combusting it in a very short period of time that we threw off that balance and carbon dioxide sets the thermostat for the planet. But I'd also like to say, Carlos, you're quite right. It's not enough just to watch CO2 emissions. Today, that's the subject of our, of our talk. But you have to keep your eyes on pollution. You have to keep your eyes on the source of everything that you're using and that you're not mining. Uh, mountains and that you know phosphorus is almost uh, exhausted in terms of finding sources of phosphorus and then you also have to keep, keep an eye on people and how the industry is treating your employees and your ambassadors of wine and it's a very difficult dynamic uh, balance balancing act and all of it is important if we are if we are to have a truly um, meaningful uh, wine contribution to to making this planet right i think i think you yes you, you're absolutely right Diane. obviously I, I think when from the core point of view one of the things that we always try to put forward is that in all right the co2 performance is great for us it's certainly nowadays a good competitive advantage but it's not a competitive advantage that it's fully realized until we are able to share that with our customers because the good thing about nowadays about CO2 and drinking a bottle of wine is that there is a direct measurable demonstrable correlation between, between all these things. About 70%, 7-0, of the value added created for corp or by corp is actually created still from the stoppers. Uh, the remaining 30% can come from flooring to aerospace material to Birkenstock saddles. Uh, uh, there's really a wide, wide application range for core but that's when 
when you go beyond that and you look at other things, I mean, well-paid agricultural jobs, let's, let's face it, we need to bring that onto the table. And the wine industry does that and the cork industry does that. Actually, uh, harvesting cork, and you have to pick up grapes in California, so you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, you can make last year was about 135 euros a day to harvest cork. And during three months only, granted, but it's easy to find four, five, six people from the same family unit doing that. And to make the math easier on everybody, imagine 100 euros a day, multiplied by four or five, multiplied by three months. That is going to give you a powerful injection of cash that is going to fix that family to that particular point in this world. And they wouldn't have to pick up and go and try to find work somewhere else and become someone else's problem also. Biodiversity. There are 36 hotspots of biodiversity around the world. The cork forests are one of the 35. And if you go to the other, to the other ones, you imagine places like Borneo, Costa Rica, the Amazon. Tom was talking about biodiversity. We have, and, and Nuno, maybe you know this from the top of your head, I think it's over 150 species per hectare in the cork forest or something to that effect. This is not a wealth that belongs to Portugal. Uh, it's, it goes well beyond that. It's not just because Portugal is the world leading producing country uh, in terms of cork. It goes well beyond water regulation. There's a great photograph of a place in Tunisia called Aindraham. And the photograph shows you in the background the northern tip of the North African desert and the line of cork oaks. The only thing holding back all that erosion is that line of cork oaks. You miss that. And that's no longer a Tunisian problem. That's an, our European problem also. Because on a straight line, we're very, very close. And guess what? Desert jumps water very, very easily. So all of these things, if we don't look at them from an integrated point of view, if we don't put the good examples forward, then they cannot become a template for other regions. And that's, I think, what we ought to bring onto the table. Right, so as a winery, when you uh, are looking at your CO2 emissions bill, everything, so everything you do contributes to it and everything you buy contributes to it. So Carlos has just made a very compelling uh, argument for using a cork as your stopper because you have this whole um, ecosystem behind it. So every choice you make not only adds to your CO2 bill, but also is part of uh, your, your, you're either choosing to support an industry or not. Anna, I would like to to take that uh, what you to take what you said about uh, an ecosystem services and how about uh, the the way we look and at ecosystem services in the wine sector is very very uh, important. It can be even determining determining to to, to the future of the, the the industry. For example, if we look at carbon as one part of looking of understanding ecosystem services. Then we add the issues of water, water regulation, soil regulation, nutrient regulations, um, natural natural enemies from the, the, the past um, disease vectors. So there's a lot that's been apparently missing from the, 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 the financial reports. So when you look at the financials from a, from, a, from a vineyard or from a winemaker company, you don't see these values. You don't see the value of biodiversity. You don't see the value of climate resilience. You don't see the value of water regulation. And you don't see the value of soil. Is this acceptable? How can we change this if it's not acceptable? 
What's your put a dollar figure to it until we are able to put a dollar figure in those services? A lot of people are not going to be interested. The bad news is that once you put a dollar figure into it, a lot of the people that we don't want to be to have interested in this will become interested in the subject. But I guess that would still be a small price break. But I have no doubt about it until until we are able to somehow demonstrate that a balance sheet of a company, of a country, of a region doesn't matter what we're talking about, can no longer just account for the financial aspects of the world we live in. Until we're able to do that, we're really not going to move the needle that much. Yeah, but, but Carlos, one of the issues is that sometimes the, the, the services, the ecosystem services being delivered by the, the, the vineyards, for example, are public, are not, are, are not to be totally accounted as company profit. So, How do you take this um, this uh, this challenge of understanding that businesses can deliver more than shareholder value, can deliver public ecosystem services, and that has an impact on the economy? How do you think that the the the, the board, the, the investors, will look at uh, at it? Can we take can we go further down down this road? What's your experience with this approach? I think that education education is key for almost anything that I can think of in life. And and this is certainly no exception. Until we, we did that. We we measured what the impact of uh, of these services are in terms of the of the cork forest. This is not what we make of because for those of you that don't know, we don't own cork forests. Okay? We get our corks and cork companies get their core crop material from thousands and thousands of producers in, in seven different countries in the world in, in the Western Mediterranean basin. But what it is that we, what's the impact of what we make viable? And I think that that one up, one down approach actually makes sense. By the way, there's about 1,300 euros per hectare of services that include absence of fire, regulation of water cycles, biodiversity, all of that. So I think, I think if you own land, if you are working with land, you have to be able to make the case for that. It's not easy. But once we do that and, and we educate everybody along the wine trade and we have a great history of leadership in, in this, part of it because of the Porto Protocol, certainly, but, but not just because of that. We're all very much invested in this because we realize, just like us in the cork industry, if there is no raw material, there's no business. And there's no raw material if we don't have the suitable environment. It's a very straightforward line for all of us. Yep. By the way, Tom, do you see do you see yourself accounting for the ecosystem services that you are producing in your in your vineyard? Um, we don't do it. We don't do that in an explicit way. Um, uh, I'm just trying to solve problems that we have, and the problems are water management. There are certain fungal diseases. Botrytis, for example, is a problem here. Uh, there are certain insects that are a problem, and we're just trying to solve problems in an ecologically sensitive way. I think one of the issues that we don't take into account adequately, though, is the understanding that, or, or the recognition that we don't really know what we're doing. Um, There are a lot of good ideas. We here have drawn a lot from our colleagues in the regenerative agriculture area. Um, and so we try to apply it to, uh, to our vineyard with the crimpers and the cover crops that we use and the way we make compost and so forth. But there's no assurance that those are going to work. 
we're very fortunate to have a very sound financial plan, but most people don't have that sort of finances behind them. And so uh, the recognition that this is a risky endeavor to walk down an unknown path versus a known path where people have largely been successful, at least in the short term, uh, to take that path. And so whatever policies and programs that we put in place uh, as a society need to recognize that farmers um, are taking a risk and to try and mitigate and ensure against that risk so that they can support their families and do the other things that need to be done in order to move forward. Yes, so one of the key issues that we seem to be having here is, aren't we making this whole issue of carbon and ecosystem accounting too complex? How can we make it more, more simple? Because we all understood that accounting for the carbon footprint can be a really headache. And accounting for the, the ecosystem services can be tricky and complicated and hard to explain somehow. But your point is, that when we when we expose ourselves to 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 good deeds, good deeds happen, and uh, that is really fascinating. And uh, I, I couldn't be more subscribing on that idea of trial and error, trying things that seem right to not not only because we tasted the wind, but because we heard other people when we talked to 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 other farmers, not only vineyard farmers but other farmers, and try to to understand. So um, I would like to 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 have your uh, Tom, Diana, Carlos, a little bit of your insights on how we could bring more people to this, to this, uh, to this challenge, to this discussion, and to make it this kind of information and this kind of practices available, easy to understand, uh, less complicated, and how can we even lobby the, the, the regulators and the, the, the governments and the agencies to, to push forward on this uh, the agenda, the circularity agenda, the agroecology agenda, the low or zero carbon agenda. How can we help to make this transition work, not only for those present here in this conversation, but to all those out there listening or not to this, this talk? Please feel free to, feel free yeah. to pitch in. <laughs> I'll start, but I, I wanna hear Diana's thoughts on this because she thinks about cycles and I think that's ultimately the the answer. Um, and she actually pointed to some of the challenges that we have now with the current tools that don't make sense to some of us. Um, and so uh, uh, I think one fundamental distinction, for example, Carlos also pointed to this, is how long you can get the carbon to stay where you put it. So in soil systems, it's uh, it can be put in there for a long time or a short time. And we need sort of simple intuitive measures that we would do anyway so that we can track that on a day-to-day -day or year-to-year vintage-to-vintage basis as opposed to the way we might do it for um, uh, a carbon-based incentive payment, uh, for example. That, that's a different, different beast. Um, uh, same thing for... Uh, uh, other things that may be more recycling oriented. So for example, the carbon dioxide that comes off the fermentations. You have to think of it, you can think about it this way too. When we make wine, uh, 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 we're, we're uh, 220 grams per liter of 
uh, glucose in our in our fermentable sugars in, in our ferment in our starting must. A third of that goes to carbon dioxide. Two thirds of it goes to alcohol. But when we drink the alcohol, we respire it right back out as carbon dioxide. I'm not sure. That's sort of a recycling kind of kind of intuitive. I'm not sure that that's going to. If we think about it in those terms, maybe we're not going to spend so much time trying to the the, the uh, storage or the or the recycling. Anyway, Diana, you brought up a lot of these topics. I'd love to hear what you had to say. Uh, well, yeah, I wish I had a good answer. And, you know, that's been the question I've been asking myself. How do you get policy to change? Because a lot of implementing CO2 capture is going to be horrendously expensive. Uh, for example, you know, Domaine de Jacques, we, we uh, have a quote. So for the moment, we're just doing the plumbing and we're doing uh, getting a carbon dioxide compressor and we're waiting. We are... are ecological super green winery is going to be ready for 2022 and we're letting technology and perhaps policy cap catch up. Um, but up until uh, I would say 2017 and the first set of wildfires broke up and broke out in California and I and I realized that I couldn't my number one priority had to be climate change if I was to protect the vineyards that I have um, the good fortune of being responsible for. And, um, and so I've started, you know, figuring out what we can do, but we're, we're a tiny, small scale operation. And, and essentially what I have learned is that all things ecological cost more. And so, first of all, I would begin by just internally swallowing that pill. Uh, I looked into heart, taking out our own wood cuttings. We happen to have an incinerator just above uh, above Domaine Dujac, which uh, turns wood cuttings into electricity and hydrogen cells. And I did a cost analysis. It costs four times as much as it would cost us to heat our buildings with the gas that is coming out of the earth. And essentially, CO2 capture for, for our tiny uh, Domaine Dujac winery, we would capture eight tons and the whole setup would cost us 100,000 euros. And uh, it, on and on and on. It's, it's, it's expensive, all of this stuff. And if we don't have a fundamental shift in where government subsidies go, um, we can't do it. You know, this, a, small, a small scale pr producer can't do it all by themselves. And so it really does take a community and I don't know how, how to make that happen other than being right here right now and talking to whomever is listening and, and has, has some experience with politics and policy. I think then, you know, this brings us back to where we started, which is in the soil uh, in a shovel ready aspect. The, the National Academy of Sciences came out with a, a report a couple of years ago on negative emission technologies. You can think about capturing the carbon dioxide off of our fermentations. It's very similar to uh, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage types of technologies. The National Academy estimates that it's gonna cost us uh, to put a lot of carbon back into the soil about $100 per ton. It's gonna, the, the carbon capture is $1,000. So you're gonna get um, a much more bang for your buck if we start uh, thinking about how we can uh, put soil put the carbon dioxide back into soil and store it there for the long time. It's not to say that we shouldn't continue to evolve those more expensive technologies because we should. But in the meantime, we as farmers 
uh, should be thinking very seriously about what we can do. And we as a society and policymakers should be incentivizing and training people to be able to do that in a, in a, uh, a global way. I think, we have to do, I think we have to do it all. I think we have to revitalize our soils because yes, they have an almost limitless capacity of CO2 capture. I think we have to do direct air capture and taking it from an alcoholic fermentation would be a logical place to, to begin. I think we have to rethink uh, the weight of our bottles and shipping um, costs and, and even, even, you know what, we could ship via wind. Sailboats still work. We have to rethink everything from the ground up. And by the way, planting some trees as well, <laughs> planting some forests, yes. right? <laughs> can be, a, can be a, restoring some because wetlands can be a, a good part of the, the scheme as well. No, no, I, 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 um, we haven't talked about about reforestation, um, but a big chunk of the CO2 problem that we have in this world is directly connected with deforestation. So I think, uh, and and Diane, just just one 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 thing, little things add up. And, and however small things you believe you are doing, they are incredibly important because they show that leadership. And I mentioned education a little while ago. You mentioned policies. I, I don't think that we're going to have good policies without good education in the long run, to be honest with you. So I, I think we are doing a little bit today. But again, little things add up. And if a lot of people start doing the little things that are within our reach, our more immediate reach, I think you create something and, and you move the needle uh, enough to catch the attention, hopefully, of the people in charge of setting policies. Um, the only big doubt that I think we all have today is, are we going to be able to do this in time or not? Is it going to be quick enough? Um, and we all have to believe it, 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 it does. Um, I mean, to, to be honest with you, we all have difficult days to get out of bed, um, but there's one thing that, at least personally, if you allow me to share this for, for a moment, is, is knowing that we need to debunk the biggest myth that we've been told, all of us. And if you allow me to explain, to, to expand the, the, the rationale here a little bit, the biggest myth is that, oh, if you want to have environmental advances, you have to sacrifice social advances. If you want to have social advances, you have to sacrifice economic advances. And, and if we, until we are able to debunk this, until we are able to tell everybody straight in, in our, into our eyes, without laughing, that there's no such thing as sustainable development. It's the biggest fallacy we have been told. If it's not sustainable, it's not development, period. And until we're able to balance people, planet, and profit, until we're able to do the three things, we don't have true development. We have something else. And to go back to what I was saying, it, sometimes it helps you get out of bed knowing that you, you're at least working for an industry that makes viable a story that has been balanced economic, social, and environmental issues, not for five or 10 years, for hundreds of years. And while the model, the template is not easy, transportable to another latitude, to another country, but next time someone says, well, you know, that's, that's, that's utopic, you know, to think that you can balance people, planet and profit, you know, maybe we can raise our hands and say, hey, I know about one place in the world where this is done. 
And if there is one place in the world where this is done, let's go crazy. Maybe there are two places in the world where this can be done. But in the process, you debunk that myth. And that, to me, is probably the single most urgent thing that we need to do. Because if you unlock that, you unlock a lot of other things. Yeah, that's 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 a great a great uh, idea that we are working with making sustainability just plain obvious <laughs> just just basic just basic stuff and turning insustainability into something that it's really what what are you doing it doesn't make sense so bringing sense to to everything so We're coming short on on time. It's, it's been an hour. I was amazed by looking at the clock and seeing that an hour has passed. So it's really, really great to be here with you. I would like um, to ask you for, um, I would say something like a, a final message or a, a way to tell all of people, all of the people that will be listening to this to this conversation, why it makes sense to look at carbon as part as a, an intimate part of the sustainability of the, the, the wine industry and as just a, as being part of a citizen of the world uh, while addressing the issues and the problems at our at our scale not solving the world all at once that seems hard although I think that Diana is trying to but <laughs> we all try but looking at our own scale and bringing more people into the conversation. So guys, final thoughts for today, obviously. <laughs> Feel free to. Diana, do you want to go first? Sure, sure. Uh, carbon, I mean, carbon is life. Uh, plants, photosynthesis is a miracle. It, you know, the ability to capture energy from the sun and store it in a carbon bond is a miracle. And I would put our focus on that. Um, you know, I think it's this, this whole, this has been a, become a buzzword, decarbonizing the economy. I think we just need to look at where it's coming from and find the balance that we had before we started combusting fossil fuels. And that is, you can do on a personal level, you can do as a family, you can do as a business, any business, and you can do as an industry. And the wine industry is well-placed to do it because we're connected to mother nature and we have a platform unlike any other agricultural um, uh, product. We have more airtime than any, any farmer out there. And it's our duty. Uh, I feel incredibly lucky to have the life I have to make wine. And I want the gener next generation, the generation that follows me to have that same gift. It's really inspiring. Thank you so much. Thank you. Tom? Thank you. Thank you all. Yeah, I really agree with Diana. We as winemakers who have the opportunity to be in front of the public, probably more often than other farmers. Uh, have an obligation to talk about this message and to take the lead on this on this topic. Um, the thing that's probably helps me conceptualize and think about what we're doing in the vineyard is to th think and try and learn about the evolution of natural processes, how carbon is, how the atmosphere is naturally decarbonized. So you can think about rock dust, which car produce carbonates in high CO2 environments. You can think about green fertilization or carbon fertilization, as Diana mentioned earlier. Um, and uh, thinking about how we can, how though that evolution occurred in the context of a landscape. So um, uh, 
adding, uh, not just thinking about fertilization, but thinking about how the um, carbon in the soil, the soil organic matter, is actually store of water and nutrients when the plant needs them, and how those how plants talk both to each other and to other plants. So that those those processes have evolved for more than 400 million years, and so um, they've gotten pretty good at balancing. And we've come in and try and disturbed a lot of that balance, uh, and trying trying to recognize how we can restore that and still produce what I think is a wonderful product. Um, and I'll call that food, not necessarily just wine, but, but all food, so. Great, great, amazing. Well, Carlos. I think, I think um, you know, you, you, have said, you have said pretty much everything. I just want to highlight perhaps one thing even, even further, which is the aspirational aspect that wine, that wine bring onto the table. It catches people's attention. I think uh, the wine trade has, has a very unique and powerful platform to bring these topics uh, on, onto the table. And, and it's culturally relevant. Uh, I mean, we didn't talk much about that because obviously it was not a big topic, but, but wine is incredibly culturally relevant across generations, across religions, across genders. I, I mean, it's really a global, a global platform that, that we all have. And I think we have that leadership within the wine industry. We have to recognize that. I think obviously it can and it will be even stronger, but, but we have an amazing starting point. And, and, and hearing you know, what, what you guys are doing, for example, it's incredibly, incredibly inspiring. And, and, because it, and it also must feel sometimes very lonely for the people that are doing this and, and wondering, you know, am I alone in this? Am I really crazy in spending this much money as, as, uh, as we're hearing today to do things when there's a cheaper way of doing it? But I don't think that we can, we have, an, we have a choice. We, there is another option. And at the end of the day, a lot of the metrics that I have seen in terms of what the consumer individually is willing to pay for, for something that makes sound that it's a sound sustainable proposition there are incredible good signs in that direction so let's let's try to be optimistic and positive and 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 reward the people that are doing the right thing as a lot of you guys are so about doing the the, the right thing and inspiring others i'll go back to the the issue of trial and error sometimes we're not sure uh, if this is the, the best, the most cost-effective, the, the most um, um, efficient, but if it's practical, if it can be put into place, and if we have the, the knowledge, the skill, and the, the, the dare to make it, I dare you to keep on doing that great work, to keep on experimenting, keep on developing ideas, more nature-based, more technological-based. We need all the, the good ideas that we can, can find because this is a global challenge. This is totally a global challenge. And sometimes, yes, Carlos, sometimes we do feel a little bit alone, <laughs> more now in this scenario where we have to be away from, from the field or away from other, other people and separated by this pandemic. So it is really important that if it's a, a, a talk in YouTube or if it's changing some emails or just changing some thoughts, it's really important that we all get to know that we're in this together and we will not only find the solutions, we will 
find lots, lots of options and different solutions. And that will bring more people on board because there's not a single solution, but there are solutions for everybody. Okay, so Marta, are you with us? I am, how are you? That was an amazing talk. Once again, thank you so much because you were able to talk on all the potential we have on the table and picking up on that very important word on solutions we have looking at the whole wine cycle and then you became extremely inspirational. And I do hope that everyone that's out there listening was as inspired as we are. And I think the most amazing thing and you touched, I think all of you touched on that is this wine platform is so key for us to bring this topic into the table. Uh, one of the things we say at Port, at Port Protocol is we are probably one of the only agricultural brands that speaks direct, directly into the, with the consumer. So we are in a very good position to talk about this topic. And looking at the table as a whole, and it, did, it was quite challenging to have from soil to packaging at the same table as we had today. But look at this, we started with soils and uh, Tom, besides being inspiration, uh, inspirational and telling us why he believes in what he's doing, he was able to tell us that is probably the best way and the simplest way to start looking on how to sequester carbon. And he told us how to. Diana went into the, something that is being uh, spoken about for a long time. And if she, she could change the world, she would scale up. She would scale it up. Sorry about this. Uh, and Diana, it would be wonderful to know more about this and how, if you were to change the world and if you were to start redesigning Bordeaux as a city, where could we start? It, it would probably be into collaborative action, I think, probably, I think, uh, but I think we have to go back there and see how we can do this. And uh, cork that is already being used and it has an immense, immense potential and it has a potential that is already in your bottles. And furthermore, cork has an ecosystem behind. And at the end of the day, what we're looking at here is an ecosystem. And looking at some of the things that all of you said, for example, Tom was saying that he can use cork to compost and carbon can be used for, to produce energy. We're closing the loop. Again, with one single product, we are closing the loop. I know you said a lot of other things, but instead of me picking up on the messages, remember that carbon is life and picking up on what Diana says is not so much about carbon itself, is about the source where it comes from. And nature gives us the solutions. As Tom was saying as well, nature, if we look at the processes nature has, Nunu has said that as well, and we've heard him say that many times, let's look for ecological solutions. Let, let's look for the answers in nature. So I won't say any further. I invite you to watch this talk again, to listen to all the solutions that were said and all the inspirations. And I also invite you to be here again on November 25th, where we'll explore further, further the topic of soils and regenerative practices. Thank you very much again for being on the other side. I know, as I said at the beginning, that your attention might be elsewhere. That's why you had to bring such amazing panelists to inspire and to grab you there. Thank you and see you next time. Bye-bye.